You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. And welcome to episode 57 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm continuing my look at Doug Murray's final three-parter on the book, a storyline that involves a chopper pilot and a donut dolly, and since once again it doesn't have a specific time where it's set, I went with something popular in 1969 and 1970, in this case it's Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. This is the title track to their final album together, an album made at a point where the relationship between the two of them had deteriorated incredibly. It was the last big hit for the group and was also one of their biggest hits, considered their signature song by many. Our story is between a rock and a hard place, is by Doug Murray writer, Herb Trimpey artist, at Phil Felix letters, Bob Sharon colors, Don Daly editor, and Tom DeFalco is your editor-in-chief. It was published on September 25th, 1990, with a November 1990 cover date, according to Mike's Amazing World. And our cover, which is by Tom Morgan, shows Dove falling out of his chopper toward a heart that is on the ground. The cover copy says... He was a copter pilot. She was a donut dolly. He fell for her hard. Lesson, careful gets you dead in the nom. It's a lot better than the last issue's cover, but Dove looks weird because Phil Felix gave him brown hair and a brown mustache all through last issue, and, and the cover here has him with blonde hair and a blonde mustache. Otherwise, it's effective in letting you know something about what was going on here. By the way, this is issue 50 of the nom. So we've hit an important milestone, uh, and we all will also be hitting the end of an era with next issue. But on to the story. We open with two scenes. In one, a chopper crashes. In another, Gail lays in bed having a nightmare until Marilyn wakes her up and tells her not to complain about being woken up. She slept plenty in the hospital and only had a concussion. And besides, they have to work for some really important top brass today. Marilyn asks... 
if Dove is going to ask Gail to marry him. Gail says he knows he wants to, but she thinks he's afraid to. At that same moment, 30 clicks away, Dove flies his chopper to red smoke, but just as he is about to land, pulls up saying it's too hot. Phil starts yelling at him to get on the ground now and below in the LZ. Martini and the rest of the 23rd wonders where the chopper is, then see him bugging out. Martini calls again for evac, while above Phil continues to scream at Dove, telling him they have to go back and then realizes that Dove is afraid because of Gale. Phil says, you think she'll stay with a coward? And this knocks some sense into Dove, who lands the chopper under fire and even takes a bullet but doesn't see any blood. They pile the guys in and Phil says they'll have to make a Senka trip. Dove says they can't and wants everyone in there. With so many guys in, the chopper has a hard time taking off, but does get off the ground. They have to fly to treetop level and eventually make it back to camp where they land safely. Marilyn and Gail greet the chopper and Phil tells the girls that Dove's been acting strange and they want to talk to him. Gail hugs Dove and he recoils, saying something sharp stabbed him in the chest. It's a fifty caliber bullet that is lodged in his armor, but didn't get to his skin. It's the definition of a close call. Dove gets scared and walks away. Phil tells Gail he'll take her for a drink at the club, and she notices how shot up the chopper is and how close Dove came to dying, that she doesn't know what she would do if something like that happened to him. Later that night, Dove has a nightmare where he's landing in a very hot LZ, and Gail is there screaming his name. Just as he lands, a missile comes right for his cockpit and crashes through. He wakes up, having fallen out of bed. Several days later, the crew of the helicopter is picking up a code package, which is much easier, and they get a dress dress call from an artillery camp that is where the girls are working that day. Dove heads over there, despite the fact that he hasn't radioed in for permission. As he arrives, the airstrike team is about to make their run and spots Dove's chopper, asking him to confirm, then telling him to check his altitude. A plane nearby clips the helicopter, and the chopper winds up in his jet wash, and they land very hard. The chopper's left skid is bent, but otherwise they can fly out of there. Dove finds Marilyn and Gale. Marilyn is incredibly distraught, and Gale is trying to comfort her. They get onto the chopper with wounded and Dove can't get it off the ground. He wonders what they're going to do. Phil says proper procedures to ditch the girls and go, but Dove can't do that and does his best to get it off the ground. Gail offers to stay behind, but Phil says not a chance, and he steps off the chopper, telling Dove to go. That's exactly what he needs, and he gets enough lift to take off. Get him out of here, pal, Phil says, and marry that girl. One of us has got to get something out of this war. There's a line in Top Gun where Charlie is teaching tactical maneuvers and talks about thinking when you're in the air, and Maverick says that if you think, you're dead. This entire issue made me think of that scene because of the fact that he's obvious, Dove's obviously in love with Gail, and that's really gotten to him. It's gotten to the point where he's being too cautious and he's overthinking everything. We get that in what's a great scene at the beginning with the landing zone and Dove's hesitation to go in hot, whereas every other time he'd been in a situation like this, it was a no-brainer. And it was a nice way, by the way, for Doug Murray to bring the 23rd into this, even if they're secondary to the main story and are just there to be people that Dove and Phil pick up. But Phil, who was silly and goofy last issue, is still kind of like that, but when push comes to shove, is all business, and you can see the very good relationship that he has with Dove, because I'm sure that nobody else could call the guy a coward and know that's exactly what he needs to snap out of his funk. The idea of being haunted, haunted by what has happened to you, haunted by dreams and nightmares, isn't anything new to this series. 
but I like how we're getting the effects of it as part of the central story here. It makes the caution that is taking over Dove's life more palpable. He's cautious to take things further with Gale because of what has happened, and he can't seem to shake the idea that something could happen to him. Plus, she's not immune to it either. Murray and Trippy do a good job of making Gale look shocked when she sees the bullet holes in the cockpit of the helicopter, and she realizes that Dove being killed in action is a very real possibility. The artwork is a bit better this time around, and I think part of that is the coloring job. It looks a lot calmer, and nobody looks pink, although Trippy obviously doesn't ink himself very heavily. Still, there's some great sequences. On page 10, when Dove gets shot through the cockpit of the helicopter, we see it in four panels on the bottom third of the page. Dove gets hit, he puts his hand on his chest, holds it in front of his face, and sees there's no blood. Then he puts his hands back on the controls. Trippy, by this time, was a seasoned pro. You can really see that here, as you can in the scene where Phil is yelling at him to get on the ground, and where Dove has his nightmares. This is the second part of a three-parter, and while things are moving fast for our characters, Murray has built it up pretty well to the point where I'm wondering what will happen to him in part three. Will Dove die? Will he marry Gale? Will their ending be happy, or will it be sad? Well, I'll be covering that next episode, so we'll just find out then. Incoming this month, uh, no letters this time. We wanted to give you a preview of some upcoming issues. The letters page will return next month. So there is the cover to issue 51. Next issue to death do this part. Dove's chopper goes down in the Cambodian jungle. It's back to the Stone Age for Dove and Phil and into a living nightmare for Gale. And the bottom half of the page is some previews of the death of Joe Hallen, which is starting in the nom number 54, and that actually is when it will start, a shattering five-part series within a series by Chuck Dixon and Wayne Van Zandt. Um, I'm looking forward to covering this. This is, uh, is going to be good stuff. But before then, but first, a special two-parter beginning in the nom 52 featuring a very unexpected guest star. Be here for what's sure to be a comics event. Hmm. We do have some nom notes, just a few. Evac, short for evacuation. Full birds, another term for colonel referring to the officer's decoration. Clicks are kilometers, LZ is a landing zone, and moss tick is really quickly. Ads, we have Wrath of the Black Mana again. Graphics so real you'll forget it's only a game. Gargoyles by... Capcom for the Game Boy. Gargoyle's Quest by Capcom for the Game Boy. Fleer basketball cards score big again in 1990. Entertainment this month. We have Spider-Man vs. Ghost Rider. It's Spidey vs. Ghost Rider and the Hobgoblin to the Death. Story and art by Todd McFarlane. Spider number 6 starts Ghost Rider and they misspelled... Well, they spelled Ghost Rider correctly but they spell it as one word, and it's only it's two words. Spidey number six starts Ghost Rider and the Hobgoblin, art by McFarlane. Hot! Batman 3D is recommended. ETM pick hits Batman, Bride of the Demon, Havoc and Wolverine, Punisher, The Prize, Spider-Man vs. Hobgoblin, Turtle Soup number one, and X-Men vs. Fantastic Four. Let's see if there's... Oh, there's some calendars, there's some Nintendo stuff, some Simpsons stuff... About it. Most of this stuff is... It's all new because this was their new comics distribution thing from what I understand. So, moving on. 
we have a video game ad. I'm going to read this one. It was the mansion of Dr. West, but those who knew it better called it Splatterhouse. West may have been the greatest parapsychologist in our field, but do we have to visit his old home? It gives me the creeps. Think of it as a school research project. Besides, the house is empty. What can happen? Jennifer, what is it? After a fight in the dark, what happened to me? What happened to Jennifer? My head, something's wrong. Can't see straight. What's the matter? My face, it's covered with the terror mask. The terror mask. Legend tells that the wearer is granted vast power, but can't remove it. If I take it off, I may never get Jennifer back. Rest in pieces, you ugly slime balls. Nothing can keep me from getting Jennifer back. Oh, yeah? I'm as good as dead, unless you can help Rick. Rick? Rick, there's no game going on here. Rick, I'm not happy about all this. Rick, I'm in love with your mother. Look, Rick, you got dumped. It happens. Call off the plans for your wedding, Rick. Don't walk away from me. This is through here, Rick. We're all through. Rick, don't do this. You don't have to do this. Rescue me in the all-new TurboGrafx-16 Splatterhouse. We have an ad that says, Become a video game superstar, but with these high-power game books. So it's like Mastering Nintendo and Tricks of the Nintendo Masters, Beyond the Nintendo Masters, The Winner's Guide to Game Boy, and The Winner's Guide to Sega Genesis. forgot that Sega Genesis was out this early. Uh, there is a graffiti. I guess this maybe this is graffiti comics, like graffiti, the same com, um, company that uh, that makes um, graffiti designs and stuff. I'm not sure. I'd have to look, but it's a graffiti ad, and it's looks it's very typewriter made, but it's kind of looks like a Mile High Comics ad as well with back issues listed. Bullets, pen, bulletins. Um, Stanley is going on about this. Thing that uh, he and John Byrne are putting together the Marvel of the Future. The tentative title is The Marvel World of Tomorrow, our first 64 page deluxe issue. Many of the main characters later spin off into real comics. Um, yeah, I'm I just going to keep my eye on this, see if it's anything that I remember to be completely honest because I honestly do not remember this but then again I wasn't that much of a Marvel person and this is right before I really started um, looking around and see what uh, what was being offered aside from Batman we've got stuff like people traveling the world we have the New York City softball team they're kicking into high gear turbocharged team captain Evan Skolnick is Driving the Marveloids hard, and with Evan cracking the whip, he will surely leave the Marvel team to victory. They're one and one so far. We clobbered DC, but we're beaten by those powerhouse houses over ABC at ABC Sports. Yeah, but let's show this ABC Sports guys try and write a comic book. 
And then we have a pretty straightforward subscription ad, a Back to the Future Part 2 and 3 video game ad. And on the back, there is a the new dungeon game, board game from TSR featuring junior high age looking kids with very early 90s haircuts. And, uh, oh, that's, that's triple the Cosby sweater in one ad. All right. That, the one kid's looking like he's rolling the dice. And he looks scared that he's rolling the dice because the other kid is looking at him like, if you don't roll the dice, I'm going to rip out your neck and then eat your soul or something. I just, the look on this kid's face is just odd. Very, very odd. And that's it for the NOM issue number 50. I'll be back in a moment with this episode's extra feature. And that is the pilot episode to the television show, The Wonder Years. This is Tokyo. Once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Stand up and walk out on me Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song I will try not to sing out of key Oh baby, how The Wonder Years was not a show about Vietnam or the soldiers who fought in Vietnam, but was a family sitcom about growing up in the suburbs in the late 1960s and very early 1970s. It ran from 1988 until 1993, and the pilot episode ran after the Super Bowl on January 31st, 1988. While the pilot's story is actually continued in the second episode, I'm just going to be covering the pilot episode 
Before my synopsis, however, let's run down the cast. Fred Savage plays Kevin Arnold, the 12-year-old main character whose older self narrates the show. That narrator is played by Daniel Stern, and it's very reminiscent of having Richard Dreyfuss narrate the adventures of Will Wheaton's 12-year-old Gordy Lachance in the 1986 movie Stand By Me. His parents are Norma Arnold, played by Allie Mills, who is a housewife. Jack Arnold, played by Dan Loria, who has a job working for a company called Norcom. Jason Hervey plays Wayne Arnold, his obnoxious older brother. And Olivia DeBeau plays Karen, his hippie older sister. Rounding out the cast are Danica McKellar as Winnie Cooper, the literal girl next door. Josh Saviano as Paul Pfeiffer, his wimpy best friend, who is allergic to everything. The show's theme song was the Joe Cocker version of the Beatles of the Little Help of My Friends, which unfortunately does not seem to have survived the DVD or streaming releases because uh, I watched this on Netflix and it's clear that Cocker's vocals were subbed out with a version that sounds like a pretty bad impression. But then we hear strings of Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds with news footage from 1968 showing up on the screen. The narrator begins by describing his life in 1968 and does so from an interesting point of view, which is what was important to him as a 12-year-old kid. He mentioned the Denny McLean 131 games that year, and he started junior high school while shots of the DNC riots, Vietnam, the Black Power saluted the Olympics, and other important world events play. It's very much... Well, I was 12 and only aware of the stuff that I found important, so it's very much every 12-year-old kid. He then goes on to say that he grew up in the suburbs and refers to it as a golden age of being a kid, which is very much something someone who would be who is being nostalgic would say and something I would say about my own childhood in the 80s, because that's nostalgia, right? Our first segment of the episode is a street-touch football game that gets interrupted because when Winnie talks to Kevin... Wayne starts giving him crap for liking Winnie, and Kevin's all, ew, gross. Then Wayne begins punching him right in there in the street, and the fight, well, as it is, is broken up by Wendy's, Winnie's older brother, Brian, who's played by Bentley Mitchum. Brian, for lack of a better word, is cool. He's the coolest guy that Kevin or anyone else in the street knows, and he's shown fixing up his 59 El Camino. You can tell that Kevin was in awe of Brian by the way the scene is narrated, and he mentions that Brian had been drafted that June and headed off to Vietnam. Paul joins the Arnolds for di- dinner, and since he's, quote, allergic to meatloaf and salad, has a sandwich. Jack comes home, and everyone avoids engaging him in conversation so that it doesn't blow his top, except for Karen, who says she's going to go on the pill, and a huge fight ensues at the table. The night before junior high, Paul and Kevin's flip through the book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, and the next morning, Kevin shows up in the kitchen wearing a hideously bad 1960s outfit of a green shirt and purple bell-bottoms. He winds up changing, but Paul doesn't and is dressed equally as ridiculous. Winnie, however, who up until that point was showing wearing overalls, pigtails, and glasses, is not, and walks up to the bus stop wearing a dress, stockings, and go-go boots with long hair and no glasses. Kevin and Paul can't believe it. So we go through the first day of junior high school, which includes the homeroom teacher telling Kevin he's got a hard road ahead of him because Wayne's a terror. A bully harassing Kevin, physical education with Coach Cutlip, who is played by Robert Picardo, who would go on to star in China Beach and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And Wayne harassing Kevin and giving him crap for sitting with Winnie in that you like her sort of way. 
the last this last thing pisses Kevin off and he screams that he doesn't like her and he storms out of the cafeteria but it's but is stopped by the principal who points out that Kevin can't leave the cafeteria with the apple that he's holding Kevin's response is to walk out anyway and then when he stopped again he throws the apple across the cafeteria Norma and Jack show up to collect their son who can't offer an explanation as to why he did that Norma's incredulous Jack simmering and Kevin probably thinks he's going to get a beating when they get home However, when they pull up into the driveway, a visibly upset Karen and Wayne come outside and tell them that Brian Cooper was killed in Vietnam. Later that evening, as the sun sets, Kevin goes for a walk and heads to a tree that he and Winnie and Paul used to play on when they were kids. Winnie is sitting there and Kevin sits down next to her, saying he's sorry about Brian and also sorry about what he said at lunch because he didn't mean it. She tells him she knows. And as Percy sledges when a man loves a woman plays, Kevin and Winnie share their first kiss. She hugs him afterward. And as we zoom out and the image freezes and then goes out to black and white, the narrator closes us out. It was the first kiss for both of us. We never really talked about it afterwards. But I think about the events of that day again and again, and somehow I know that Winnie does too whenever some blowhard starts talking about the anonymity of the suburbs or the mindlessness of the TV generation. Because we know that inside each one of those identical boxes, with its Dodge parked out front and its white bread on the table and its TV set glowing blue in the falling dusk, there were people with stories. There were families bound together in the pain and the struggle of love. There were moments that made us cry with laughter. And there were moments like that one of sorrow and wonder. Now, I honestly hadn't seen this episode in probably 20 years uh, when The Wonder Years was being rerun on WPIX in the afternoons. And if I recall correctly, I think I've only seen this episode once. I remember the kiss at the end because I think it's one of the most iconic moments of the series. I know that Winnie's brother died, but beyond that, I couldn't remember anything else about it. That's good, though. It gave me the chance to look at the episode from an almost fresh perspective, and I have to say it's very well written. It's very tight. It's absolutely one of the best pilot episodes I've ever seen. Yes, there are some things that are very piloty. quite a bit of the first segments of news clips, home movies, and narration. And the way Brian has talked about at the beginning when the narrator mentions his being drafted, you almost note to yourself, pay attention, this will be important later. But those are nitpicks. This show really captures the awkwardness of junior high school, a period in your life when you don't feel like you should be a kid anymore but aren't quite a teenager. I'm not going to get into much about the coming of age and 7th grade stuff because I'm tempted to actually just watch the rest of the series and do a pop culture affidavit episode about it. But I do want to talk about the Vietnam-related aspect of this, since this is a show about a Vietnam War-related comic book. The war is in the background. At one point, it's literally in the background because there's footage on the news that Kevin and his family have on at dinner. But Vietnam plays the role of a specter, in a sense. It looms, and it will loom here and there throughout much of the show's run, especially where Kevin's older sister Karen is concerned. But where it intrudes, and the reason why I picked this episode to review, is the scene at the end where the family finds out that Brian is killed. 
Yes, it's foreshadowed a little by his one scene toward the beginning, but up until Karen and Wayne come out of the house, the entire episode has been about Kevin, and the scene leading up to that one is about Kevin's getting in trouble at school and how Jack's just going to destroy him when they get home. And they pull up, and Kevin's thinking, he's going to kill me. And Jack says, just says, go inside, and they pause in the driveway. And then you have to give you have to give all the credit to the actors, especially Olivia DeBeau and Jason Hervey. She looks like she spent the last hour crying and is crushed. And he looks visibly upset, yet he doesn't know what to do with himself. And I have to say they both give the scene the weight that it needs. The kiss with Winnie is incredibly sweet, but bittersweet, considering the death of her brother. I love that this episode didn't pull that punch, but it also tried not to be melodramatic. Norma's reaction is to call Winnie's parents and find out if they need anything, because that's the type of thing a housewife would do back then. It's very in character. And Kevin and Winnie both being out alone? Very accurate as well. They're kids who understand what happened, but don't fully comprehend it and are old enough to be expected to handle themselves, especially when the adults might not be able to, and wind up having to, for a lack of a better word, lean on each other. And the kiss is... Well, it's two 12-year-olds kissing. It's not sloppy, it's not over the top, it's just him kissing her. They hold it, and it's over. And the feeling in the last five minutes of this show is palpable. I found myself affected in a way that I didn't think I would. In fact, I'm probably going to go watch the rest of the series from here on out since it's streaming on Netflix. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for coming along with me for the Namishi 50. Thanks for coming along with me for this first episode of The Wonder Years. I'll be back again in two weeks with the latest issue, the nom number 51, Doug Murray's last issue on the series that he created. And until then, take care, and thanks for listening. I'll take your part Oh, when darkness comes And pain is all around Like a bridge over troubled water You have been listening to In Country, podcast that covers Marvel Comics, The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.